You're listening to From the Clubhouse, a National Club Golfer podcast. T-sheets are still busy, membership remains buoyant and as the success of England Golf's independent golfer scheme shows, new players continue to be attracted to our wonderful game. While the number of rounds played may not be hitting the heights of 2020 and 21, they remain way above pre-COVID levels and there has been no sign in this year's club renewals of a halt in the sport's popularity. And yet there are gathering clouds on the horizon cost of living crisis, spearheaded by huge energy bills that seem certain to come our way later this year, represent a big threat to our disposable incomes and could dramatically change our leisure habits. So how can golf prepare for this and how can the authorities help? What about other issues around growing participation for women and girls, sustainability and of course the world handicap system? To talk about the success of iGolf and how England Golf are meeting the challenge in some of these areas, my guest on the From the Clubhouse podcast this week is the Governing Body's Chief Operating Officer, Richard Flint. Richard, welcome to the From the Clubhouse podcast. Hi Steve, great to join you on the podcast. Yeah, great to have you with us. A very interesting time. Um, regarding golf and membership and the future. So we'll get into uh, to some of those in the next sort of half hour or so. But first, let's start with the recent news that has come out of England golf, which is the year, the first year of iGolf, the um, independent golfer scheme. You, you set yourselves quite an ambitious target, I think, in the first year of 25,000 signups and you've um, you've hit that target. Really pleased, Steve, within within the first year, and um, you know, hitting that twenty five thousand target was uh, was was positive, um, as you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it later on that there are one or two um, stakeholders, albeit golfers or, or golf clubs, that were a little bit concerned at the time when we launched, um, but you know, twelve twelve months on, um, we've we've done what we said we'd do. We obviously want to push on and, and obviously offer that opportunity for more uh, non members to. To get that subscription, get their official index and, and personal liability. Um, so yeah, really good first year. Well, you you alluded to what was going to be my next question there, which was when independent golfer scheme was first announced, uh, and when it was announced again in its in in what became its current form of iGolf, there was there was a lot of commotion about it. I think that's fair to say, both from uh, from golfers and from clubs and also from counties as well. I mean, I think one of the interesting things has been, you know, if you contrast it with perhaps the World Handicap System, where there are still some grumbles around whether they're right or wrong, we don't really hear much about iGolf anymore. And we don't hear much, uh, uh, you know, from clubs who, who who perhaps are having a difficult time of it. I mean, what, what do you think that says about the scheme? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think to pick up your, your initial point, it was clearly an emotive and, and sensitive subject for some. And you know, you, you've been on some of the webinars and workshops in the past that we were we were talking as, as part of the consultation um, process. Um, I think it's great that there's more positivity around iGolf now. I think it certainly came at a time when COVID pandemic lockdowns were about. There was certainly uncertainty around the game and the industry, how we would come out of that. Um, and, and of course, we we recognised that and understood that at the time. 
um, but hopefully the scheme has um, proved perhaps some of those doubters wrong that it was always about trying to increase avidness of play we were trying to obviously increase the number of non-members transitioning into into club membership you've seen that some from from the figures within year one 1500 uh, eye golfers have gone on to join a golf club so that's significant in, increase uh, certainly from a financial perspective in terms of income coming into golf club membership so that's a that's a real real positive i think again you know golf club membership has, has boomed as we know and, and golf clubs at the moment are in a financially healthy position um, so it's coincided with that but of course we put checks and balances in place um, with the iGolf uh, iGolf subscription scheme so you, if you've been a member within the last six months you can't join um, again to protect and understand some of the concerns that those golf clubs had at the time so there are checks and balances in place um, with iGolf and again we've got 25,000 subscribers that are playing golf on a regular basis average age 42 the average index 19.6 so these are people that are playing on a regular basis they're, they're good golfers they're not necessarily first timers that have just started the game so we're in a good place we're also just to add as well now starting to see um, golf clubs promote their competition offers um, other benefits their membership offers as well so that's starting to grow um, and again for those golf clubs and managers and secretaries that are listening to this call you know please contact us very happy to promote the benefits of club membership to iGolfers. Yeah that's really interesting because I think one of the most vociferous things that came out of um, some of the early discussions around iGolf was we're not going to allow these players to play in club competitions we're not going to allow these players to play in our open competitions and yet and yet that does seem to be happening now do you think that I mean part of that perhaps could be because of the handicap committee that is there that just keeps an eye on 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 these eye golfers handicaps which was one of the big concerns wasn't it? I mean how does that handicap committee work and I know that you know without pressing you too much on it I know there has been some examples haven't there where handicap committee has done its job and and you know changed the handicaps of players who perhaps didn't have the most honest of aims yeah I think there's a couple of points to that that question Steve I mean I mean one from a a commercial perspective from a golf club um, environment they see there's an opportunity to engage with independent golfers one obviously to to sell their, their services and their products but most importantly hopefully that the membership they've got so again these are golfers and they're playing on a regular basis so why not promote obviously the, the membership opportunities um, you've got and, and if that leads to one or two other things um, great obviously every golf club has a handicap committee as determined by the rules of handicapping and likewise we've obviously set that up for iGolf so we have an England Golf iGolf handicap committee um, headed up by uh, Gemma Hunter our head of handicapping and course rating um, but we also have um, handicap and course rating advisors experts who are knowledgeable in their field so we review all iGolf handicaps on a regular basis as does a golf club with their golf club members again as you know that the system's automated so it has specific flags um, but again the handicap committee for iGolf is effectively doing the same job as a golf club handicap committee it's working we're engaging with iGolfers on it the one thing that I, that I would say is that we are continually having to educate iGolfers in terms of the rules of handicapping because it's obviously new to them as it is new to many golf club members as we made that transition across the WHS so it's something ongoing in terms of that education and understanding about the system. 
And just the headline figure that really stood out, I thought, was um, outside, obviously, the 25,000 was the 1,500 players that you talked about um, switching from the programme into golf club membership. I mean, you talked about at the start of the scheme, the pathway um, to club membership. And obviously, both yourselves and Martin Slumbers has talked about avidness and that that being a driving force. I mean, um, it's it's not an inconsiderable number, is it, of people who have joined golf clubs as a result of paying £40 and dipping their toes in the water? Look, it, it, it's a great starting point. And, and as we said, it, it was one of the main objectives of obviously launching iGolf to create that pathway and, and that transition. So there's a number of clubs that have already benefited from that um, in, in year one of, of iGolf, and we expect that to uh, to increase more. Um, so I think for us, it's about the ability to t uh, connect with golf clubs, to connect with golfers, um, to try and sell the benefits of, of membership and those opportunities. And the good thing is with the system, because it's the same platform, it's the same index, that those scores, the index and the playing record can get seamlessly transitioned across to their home club. Um, and again, you know, this is also about customer experience. We want the golfer to have a good experience within iGolf and then obviously that transition to clubs. So the fact it's on the same platform, they have the same system, they become a club member and then they can start obviously playing in those mm -hmm. competitions and increasing the number of records or playing uh, or competitions or general play within their records. Yeah, £25,040 is a lot of money. Um, Jeremy Tomlinson, obviously England Golf Chief Executive, was very clear that this surplus would be, or whatever surplus after the cost of the scheme would be reinvested into the game. Have you been able to identify some projects yet that you're looking to get into? Or have you already utilised some of the money in, in, in ways to, to promote the, the game? Well, we, we're looking at that now. I think it's clear, and, and we've said that both both Jeremy and myself previously, as a national governing governing body, we want to invest money back into the sport to grow the game and obviously uh, support those players at whatever level um, um, they're, they're playing the game, whether that's grassroots or, or through to the talent pathway. Um, we have a working group um, that engages on iGolf um, that we look to consult with on, on various uh, various ideas. And in terms of the point about reinvestment back into the game, one of the things we were clear about at the start was when we have that surplus, it would be very much around inclusivity. Um, so projects targeted around uh, women and girls, junior golfers, those uh, from an ethnic diverse background, those from a disability uh, background. So those are the conversations we're now starting to have. Um, and the working group will look to define that, you know, hopefully over the next few months. So it was about getting year one, in terms of underway um, and obviously assessing um, the behaviour of iGolf subscribers, looking at that retention piece and now financially looking at where we can reinvest that money. So you've got your 25,000. I think you were looking at 125,000 after year five. So another 25,000 hopefully this year. I mean, how do you go about doing that then? I mean, because uh, now that the scheme's fully operational and it's and it's been running for 12 months, I suppose the initial buzz around it has faded. It's part of the, the the golfing climate now. So how do you then double the number that you that you need for, for 12 months time? It, it keeps the marketing and comms team on their toes for a start, Steve, in, in terms of looking at different ways and avenues in terms of promoting the scheme. I think, you know, we certainly saw the buzz within the first couple of months of launch and there was quite a significant increase. But in terms of um, the new subscribers coming on board, it's been pretty been pretty steady over that 12, 12 month period. Of course, in the, in the summer months, we, we get more 
Um, so in terms of the different types of uh, communication and marketing and advertising, we're just looking at different ways in terms of reaching those independent golfers. Now, of course, we, we've we've put these numbers on record before and, and you've heard it. We think there's like a 2.3 million independent golfers or, or non-members playing the sport on a regular basis. So that is effectively the target market and the audience. And quite frankly, that, that's going to test us and, and obviously that marketing and, and communications over the next four to five years in terms of how real that figure is. Um, so again, what we do very well um, as an industry um, and perhaps organisations in with golf is golf talks to golf pretty well. Um, and I think uh, we've we've said that before, but how do we engage out, outside um, different avenues and, and different ways of promoting iGolf than the, the, just those general golfing avenues? Yeah, certainly an, a, a, an avenue for you, for you would be women and girls, wouldn't it? I think I've seen figures from iGolf before that suggested that it was overwhelmingly male in in terms of the number of members i suppose as golf club membership is it's 80 between sort of 82 and 86 percent isn't it um male membership i'm i'm interested that we're, we're talking as um we're about to get into a euro 2022 final um that seems to have completely captured the imagination and and hopefully will transform the landscape for women's football i mean how can golf try and get down this same path? How can we encourage more women and girls to play golf? I know you're doing great things with, you know, getting to golf and girls golf rocks, but but how can we sort of narrow this, start to narrow this gap more? Because I think one of the figures that came out of the RNA statistics was that there are more women and girls playing golf, but they're not necessarily in membership yet. Yeah, I think it's a great point generally. And, and again, as, as you've already highlighted within our course planning, which is a strategic direction for the next five years, women and girls um, continues to be a, a real focus for the organisation, not just in terms of grassroots and getting more uh, women and girls playing and into membership, but within volunteer roles and within leadership roles. And we're working closely with the RNA in, in terms of some of the training and education they put on. But specifically to iGolf, the percentage is low and we're conscious of that. And we obviously want to increase that. Now, of course, in terms of the pool and that market compared to males, it, it is smaller. Um, but nonetheless, we are looking at different ways in terms of uh, female activation from a marketing and the comms perspective. Um, so engaging with um, different organisations, um, different communities. I think it's probably fair to say whilst we've got 25,000 iGolfers within the scheme, we're looking at how we can build that community um, of like-minded individuals and obviously supporting new iGolfers coming in. So we're looking at different ways in terms of the assets, in terms of the marketing, in terms of the different channels you will see a different approach over the next three to four months in, in terms of trying to target that that female market. So there's a lot more we are going to do and, and that we've got um, got in the plans ahead of the next few months. One of the reasons I was asking you about it was, I mean, whether they're true or not, there are still perceived barriers to membership for women and girls, but you'd think iGolf would remove some of those. Yeah. I think you know we the important thing for us um, is is around getting more insight in terms of why haven't we got a higher percentage of females with within iGolf? Obviously, the the index and handicapping and the competitive element isn't for necessarily for everyone. So again, for us, is how can we build that community and really that link? You alluded to it before from getting to golf or girls golf rocks into iGolf and then then into membership. So. Um, there's more insight that we're looking to obviously um, get uh, from the various kind of channels and, and research that we've got. So we recognise it's really important for us. We need to do more. And, and as I say, we've, we've got some plans that are going to be coming into play over the next two to three months. 
Let's move on to membership then. Um, and um, I, I think this is going to be inextricably list, linked with cost of living. So we'll probably look at the two as, as a whole. I mean, first, the positive. Um, obviously, everyone knows now there was a huge boom for golf during coronavirus. It still feels a bit uncomfortable saying that, but it's, but it's true. Um, and uh, campaigns like uh, membership give it a shot were hugely successful and are obviously into another year now. The figures show that 737,000 um, total uh, golfers in membership in England, a rise of 14% on February 2021. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, golf's in a pretty good place at the moment, right? We're in a good place and, and those numbers that you've highlighted, obviously, from a, an industry perspective and particularly golf club perspective, uh, it's positive uh, and uh, we should look at it in, in that respect. So the numbers are good and golf clubs are thriving financially and in terms of the number of people that are playing regularly. But we cannot, Steve, rest on our laurels. Uh, and, and you mentioned it, that cost of living, the squeeze on disposable income, it's already here. Um, if we listen to the, the press and the media, it's only going to get worse. Um, and of course, going forward, that could well have an impact on whether individuals choose to uh, to renew their membership. Um, if we look, if we fast forward to next year, January renewals and April renewals, it's going to be an interesting time um, to see because that's going to be really tough in terms of the winter, particularly with obviously what's coming with the uh, the energy costs. I think it has been quite a smart move for those clubs that have put their renewals to a, a, a spring or summer when people are playing on a regular basis and obviously can see the benefit they're getting from membership. I think for us, and, and again, you highlighted membership, give it a shot campaign, our focus in terms of supporting those golf clubs that, that want it and are working closely with us is around retention. You know, we, we know that retention is absolutely key now going forward over the next six to 12 months. Uh, and resources and support and the club officer network that we have, the membership give it a shot campaign is very much focusing on that retention piece. So golf clubs obviously have to be wary, um, not rest on their laurels, um, and, and hopefully we, we can get through what, what's coming with the, with the cost of living. So what can golf clubs do about this then? And how can the governing body through your, you know, your, your network of officers um, help with that because this this is a problem that is entirely not of a golf club's making. It's not that they haven't engaged with customers. It's not that you know the the golfer has decided that um, the the course isn't. I don't like the course or the club isn't giving me what I need. This is purely uh, a a problem that is outside of the golf club's making. And and so, so how does membership future proof itself against a three thousand eight hundred pound possible energy bill? Yeah, well, I think you're right. But just just to pick up on, on the flip side as well, with that increase in membership, again, we should put a rider against that, that what that wasn't necessarily that all golf clubs were being creative or innovative or on the front foot around governance. That was through circumstance. So obviously we've we've got to balance that up. But look, you know, let, let's take that position as a positive um, and, and make sure that, that clubs can push on. You know, from us in terms of you take that retention piece, how do golf clubs and how should golf clubs engage with their members? So there's a communication piece and an education piece in terms of what more can clubs can, can they do? Where are the areas that members want improvement? What do they see that the club can do differently? And again, we very much advocate golf clubs surveying their existing members, surveying their new members. Almost as important or probably as important is exit surveys as well. 
So from a starting point, without golf clubs understanding what their members and new members and existing members and, and previous members want, that's the starting point we need to get to, because if they can understand that, they can put things in place to obviously aid that retention piece. I don't think there's one size fits all, Steve. I think it's obviously on a case by case basis and clubs obviously have to look at what their own strengths and potential weaknesses are um, to put things right. Um, of course, in terms of financial planning, um, a lot of golf clubs offer obviously uh, monthly credit schemes as opposed to paying all up front. And obviously that eases the burden on, on some that won't be right for everyone. Um, we know that more and more clubs are offering kind of flexible or lifestyle memberships. So again, what are the different categories that golf clubs can put in, in, into play? So there's lots of things that golf clubs can look at, but they need to do what's right for them. But again, I would go back to making sure that they understand the wants and needs of their members and really starting to address those as opposed to thinking they know what they need. Would you be advocating that clubs look at the, the way that they um, get their subscriptions from members when these bills start to land in January? I think, as I say, clubs clubs have to look at um, you know their own um, their own position, their own business model, their own structures, and do what's right for them. And, and of course, there's various options that they can look at and, and include. So, again, you know, it has to be taken seriously, doesn't it, in terms of what's coming with the the cost of living and the squeeze on, squeeze on disposable income. So, how golf clubs can potentially support their members, you know, should be pretty high up on that priority list. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen these figures yet. They'll, they'll come out pretty soon. There was some BRS member data um, from April to July. Obviously, they asked the question of, of their respondents with the cost of living increasing. Do you view playing golf as a luxury or a necessity? They had just over 13,000 answers and just over half of those people said it was a necessity, which is great news. Um, but then there was around a third who said it was a luxury. And, and I think that's where the danger lies, doesn't it? In, in, um, in not um, thinking about these people when we come into what's bound to be a very, very tricky time. It does. And it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I think from that necess necessity versus versus luxury, certainly the perception from outside of the game is that kind of it's a, it's a luxury item. And, um, you know, the, the old perceptions that in some cases still exist, it's it's elitist. And, and again, we all as an industry, um, you know, the national governing bodies, the, the press, the media we still need to break down those barriers in terms of, you know, golf is a game for everyone. Anyone can play, no matter what their age, gender, background, etc. Um, you know, we want to make the game more inclusive. So we have to do all we can to obviously, um, you know, push that message. Great thing is in terms of that high percent that golf is a necessity. Well, for many, let's look at the benefits, whether it's social, whether it's physical well-being, mental well-being. Um, golf has a lot of benefits. And again, I think it's something that perhaps as, as an industry we've fallen short of, that there's more we can do to promote those particularly health benefits. Um, not just for obviously members, but for gol for golfers in general. But again, coming back to that point about that luxury item, again, that's going to be a tough one. Um, and, and golf clubs need to consider what's right for them in terms of that messaging for their members. Yeah, it's it's certainly a necessity for me, and I'm and I'm sure it is for for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. But um, we've all we've all got big energy bills coming probably in October and certainly in January. So. Um, for those who are going to find it a struggle to pay, um, I suppose a golf club membership is um, is one way of paying it. Um, but but let, let's move on a little bit. I mean, 
Um, around a year or so, I, I think um, we, we chatted and you said that golf clubs would never have a better opportunity than they had then um, to increase membership. And um, it, it, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, I think you said. It was very catchy and it, and it got some headlines, but but it was true. And I, th and I think probably what we're going to see in the next 12 months or so as a result of that, that, that golf had to sort of make hay while the sun shone. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, and, and and you know, with, without repeating, it was an opportunity. It has been, and so golf is in a good position. But as I say, you know, we don't want to, we don't golf clubs to rest on their laurels now. Um, and there's an opportunity to to obviously push on um, and, and obviously focus. And I, I will keep saying it. Apologies, it's a bit repetitive, but that retention piece is is so crucial. So again, just another shout out, particularly to our, our delivery team of regional managers and club support officers that um, have the knowledge, um, the expertise, the resources and guidance they can signpost to help golf clubs on, on that membership uh, retention and membership, give it a shot piece. Yeah. So how have you had to alter your strategy then as a governing body in result to this? Because pr presumably, you know, membership, give it a shot at a certain strategy and a certain way of working and, it, and it's, it's proved to be very successful. And now, for, again, something that's completely out of your control, um, there's a very different scenario that's arisen. Yeah, look, I mean, in, in terms of the actual campaign itself, membership, give it a shot. There's more resources and, and guidance um, in, in terms of retention as opposed to recruitment. So in the early days, it was very much about how can we recruit more members um, in, into clubs and support golf clubs doing that. The resources and that knowledge and ex expertise is now coming from a retention piece. But of course, there's other things in terms of um, golf and, and golf clubs and the industry and, and particularly as a national governing body we're, we're focusing on um, so one is around equality diversity inclusion uh, we've recently launched our edni framework that, that sets out how we see ourselves making the game more inclusive and working with stakeholders such as counties and clubs and other bodies to help do that and particularly how we focus on getting more underrepresented groups within to the sport so the, the the conversation not just with membership has shifted around how can we make the game more inclusive there's also a sustainability angle in, in terms of uh, the, the conversations and narrative that, that we're now having one as an organization leading by example but with golf clubs you will have seen it at the open recently steve in terms of the great work that the rna are doing and particularly on sky in terms of the promotion of the impact of climate change and what that impact could have on golf clubs but not just what golf clubs could do in, in terms of um, sustainability uh, and good practices, both on and off the course, but the difference every individual golfer can make in terms of making a small difference. And so we, we've launched our sustainability plan um, last month, which highlights what we're looking at doing. And of course, this is a longer term play. It's not just something that's going to happen overnight, but how we can support golf clubs in terms of making making the right choices. So again, to bring that to life, our own facility here at the National Golf Centre, Woodall Spa, has recently just got geo certification in terms of the, the, the excellent practices, sustainable practices, both on and off the course. And we're currently embarking on a net zero project with our championships. Um, it's our men's and women's amateur championships this week at Worksop and, and Lindrick, and we're benchmarking our carbon footprint, us as an organisation, the golfers and the golf clubs themselves, and we're going to have a a carbon reduction uh, plan in place for 12 months time. So again, yes, it's relevant for us, but it's also relevant for golf clubs, because if we put the right things in place from a sustainability point of view, it can be good for the bottom line as well. 
How do we engage golfers in this then? I mean, I, I found it very difficult um, to do to, to to kind of engage people with the changes that are coming and, and they are coming and they're going to be big, big changes. I mean, we've already seen the reductions in chemicals and what that's meant, for example, in a perfect storm for leather jackets and Schaefer grubs. You know, we've got water companies who are almost inevitably going to be talking about restricting the water to golf clubs in the future. Some of them may have already been doing that. I'm not sure. You know, and yet um, when we've had the, the current weather that we've had and golf courses, golf, golf, golf courses, sorry, have, have turned brown. You've seen the usual what's wrong with my golf course. How can we educate golfers then? To, to deal with um, the changes that are coming, because they are coming, right? They're definitely coming and it's not going to be easy. Um, I think what we found in, in, in engaging uh, with golf clubs and other bodies like, like the Greenkeepers Association, there's a lot of golf clubs and a lot of course managers and greenkeepers, for one, that are already passionate um, about this area and are already putting in place a lot of good practices. So one, we need to make people aware of that and we need to celebrate that fact so we're not starting from scratch. But also outside of the industry, there is this perception that golf golf and golf courses are bad for the environment and we have to flip that narrative. Um, otherwise, it just becomes more, more negative. So it is very much the advocacy and education piece. So if we can get golf clubs thinking, and I'm talking in bite-sized chunks here, so this isn't necessarily just using the language sustainability, because that might put some people off. Let's talk just about water resilience or energy consumption or waste management and, and bite-sized chunk it to bring it to life in terms of what that means. And to your point earlier with water resilience, the look and feel of golf clubs and the playability of services, no doubt, are going to look different. But it's very much about educating club members on a club by club basis. And the people within the club are mainly the course managers and greenkeepers who are knowledgeable and expert in this area, trying to educate and, and get golf club members to understand that. We have a role to play with that and other industry bodies in terms of that wider campaigning piece. Um, but it's going to take time, no question at all. Firm and fast brown means it means it goes further. I love it. Um, you'll never hear me uh, doing it down. It's interesting the point that you made earlier because there is definitely an agenda out there in certain sectors about the use of golf courses uh, and opening them up either for green space or the other thing that we see now is housing. I mean, how how do we how do you as a governing body counter that? It's an interesting one with housing, isn't it? And I appreciate you know the the, the challenge around round housing, but you know. More houses on a golf course is not going to be good for the environment, full stop, and from a sustainability perspective. So, you know, we, we certainly have to have to challenge that. It goes back to my earlier point in terms of this perception outside of the industry that people have about golf. We we have to flip, we have to flip that narrative um, from an environmental point of view, from a biodiversity point of view, conservation point of view, ecology, etc. There's there's a lot of things that we can do to obviously promote that. So I think for one, there's a, a wider industry campaign that's needed with the bodies coming together on sustainability. And that would include the likes of the RNA that are already doing some great stuff with their open uh, and other events that they run. Um, but again, I keep coming back to it. It's that education at golf, golf club level, club by club, golfer by golfer, just understanding that they can do their bit. Um, there's also a an important lobbying piece with, with government directly around the benefits that golf can provide um, uh, around sustainability and the impact of climate change. So again, bit by bit, we need to do do our own thing. Yeah. Let me ask you briefly about the World Handicap System. 
Um, we're getting on towards two years in now. I mean, how are you as the governing body finding it? If you take the internet as your only source of um, source of knowledge, um, and I often find myself in in, in some corners of social media, um, there is the, there is this kind of grumbling still about uh, WHS and certain aspects of it. Is that what you guys are seeing on the ground, or has the has the scheme settled in a bit better than than perhaps you would? gather if you only looked in certain areas? Yeah, look, I think um, it was always going to take at least two playing seasons for things to settle down. A completely new handicap system, uh, completely different to the previous Congi system, talking to other federations as well, that they're, they're having um, that that's kind of similar experience. And, and of course, look, we, we we see the same comments that you do online and, and we obviously get uh, comments from golf clubs coming to us directly and golfers coming to us directly as well. So we get it because it's, it's a new system, but I wouldn't say that's the majority um, of feedback we get. Um, it's certainly very polarised that, that that one end and people have got specific comments on it. But generally, we would say that WHS has settled down well. Yes, there are still niggles and there are still challenges. Clearly, it's a worldwide system. So the, the data anonymized that we're putting into the RNA and the USGA, every other federation doing that. And they're obviously analyzing things like PCC, which I'm sure may well be a question that, that we come to, the playing conditions uh, calculation. But generally, we feel we're in a pretty good place with the platform standing up to the calculations and the volume of scores that are coming through it. You know, since launch, we now at 11 million scores. Um, majority of those are competition, but a significant amount more of general play scores that we see. So we feel we're, we're in a good place with, with WHS. But as I say, that there's more that can be done. Interruptibility is, is another thing that we're, we're conscious of and we're really pleased, obviously, with Ireland, uh, Scotland and Wales, that we now have that in place uh, across borders in terms of handicap lookup and, and submitting scores through GB&I. That's been the test case for the rest of the world. So we're really eager that we can take that on and have that interruptibility with the rest of the world, because then it is truly a worldwide handicap system. I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that a high amount of queries that we're getting are around PCC and what is perceived, and it may be correct, but obviously we've got to look at the data that what previously under the Congo system was CSS that moved quite, or what people perceive moved a lot more than what PCC is doing at the moment. Um, we have obviously put that anonymized data into the RNA and we do believe there will be a change to that. Can't give you the, the exact details or, or the date there. But again, that's looking at other federations and, and, and other data. But largely we feel the system is good. Um, the platforms and the app are standing up well. Um, and we'll continue to take on feedback and continue to review that. And just finally, uh, I, I don't want it to cast a pall over our conversation, but but cost of living is the big thing that's coming. Um, and I think everyone's aware of that. How big a threat do you think this is to golf club membership and to all the gains that have been made over the last two or three years? We think about wishing to give you kind of a, a, a soundbite, Steve. It, it, it is it is a threat, it is a challenge, um, not not just to golf, but to uh, to society. And we see the challenges, uh, you know, every day in terms of the news and the press and the media. So, so, you know, we can't sit here and say that we should ignore it and everything's going to be all right. Um, it, it will be a challenge. So 
let's understand what those challenges are um, for us as an organization other organizations the industry but most importantly from a golf club and a golfer perspective let's understand that um, and try and support and guide and address what's coming Richard great to speak to you as always thanks for joining me on the from the clubhouse podcast thanks Steve appreciate it Thank you.